everybody. Welcome back to Under the Microscope, where we dissect the art of basketball. I'm Coleman Ayers from Bonnie Means Basketball. And I'm Joseph Ishak from Value Basketball Skills Training. So today we have a very interesting guest, um, my man all the way from Amsterdam, Yuri Pagel. Um, been following his, his stuff on Instagram. Um, very unorthodox path up to where he's at right now, too. So I'll let you guys, or I'll let you kind of take it from there. But um, definitely everything from from his journey to to his views um in the snc world to what we're going to talk about today which is in-season periodization very very genuine very very um you know um, authenticated views so i'm excited to get to it if you just want to start off a little bit with your background kind of how you got to where you're at like i said i've listened to a couple podcasts where you explain where you explain your background and it's very interesting, unorthodox, but I think it kind of holds some some value in how you got to where you're at today for people who aren't necessarily on that typical strength and conditioning path the entire way. So just a little bit about your background. All right. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, so, yeah, Yuri, um, I'm a performance trainer, strength and conditioning trainer, whatever, uh, here in uh, in Amsterdam. Um, like you said, my, my background really hasn't been the, of the, uh, the traditional kind. Uh, my background is actually in business. So I graduated as a business uh, major from the University of Amsterdam and sports, you know, was always my passion. I was a hooper when I was younger, but I, I used to always be the smallest kid in class and definitely not the most coordinated. So like I couldn't really compensate for the, the lack of height. Uh, I wasn't athletic. I went through like a growth spurt when I was about 15, 16, shot up to about six, four but the coordination didn't show up. So like, you know, I, I got the height enough to be a one or a two, but like it just didn't work out. So basically I could bang in the post cause I got real strong. Um, but that yeah. was it. That was the end of my athleticism. And so I played basketball and organized basketball until I was 20. And that's basically when I kind of gave up the, the idea that I could get to a, to a higher level. Um, which, I mean, it took a little bit longer than it probably should have because I could have made that realization. <laughs> I, I, I think I've said this before somewhere, but it's pretty funny. I think I remember I was 13. And over here, like, exposure to the NBA is there, but, like, it wasn't as much when I was 13 as it is now. Mm-hmm. And I remember I looked at the NBA stats, and I saw Brian Scalabrini scored, like, two points a game, right? The white Mamba, he hit, like, two a game. Mm-hmm. I scored, like, four my second year playing basketball. Now I was five, three, five, four at age 13. And like, I was like, oh, but I'm scoring four and this dude is scoring two, which means I can make it to the league. <laughs> Needless Logic. to say, Brian Scalabrini would probably mess up any hooper that you know. Yeah, um, hell yeah. But yeah, that was kind of my thought process. So, you know, I kept playing basketball until I was 20. I started hit the weight room before that. And it was very like specific to basketball kind of thing. You know, I saw workouts online from, from NBA players and I would just replicate the workouts, right? You see like a, a sample workout and just try. That's like, you know, we can talk about that. That's one of the biggest things you can probably do wrong is do what the pros do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause yeah. there's a, you know, there's a reason they're already at that point. What they need is probably not what a 17 year old kid's needs, kid needs. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but you know what happened? I started doing all that kind of stuff and I got a little bit stronger, but still didn't get more athletic. So when I quit basketball, I could barely dunk off one foot some days and two feet. That was just like, that was a no go. That would never happen. And so for two years, I just hit the weight room and uh, squatting, deadlifting, cleaning, snatching. And I, I just did it for that. And I enjoyed doing it and I got a lot better. So I really got engaged into the process of like getting stronger, getting more explosive. And I really didn't think about jumping or basketball or any of it. And then I remember two years later, so I was 22 at the time, I, uh, I went back and I played ball with a friend of mine. That was the first time I played ball in those two years. Wow. And also I, I could dunk from a standstill. Oh, that's and, crazy. Wow. Oh, that's wait crazy. a minute. So I was 22. I was, I was still, uh, uh, you know, still in school for, for business. And I was like, I have the magic potion right here. Like they always say there is no, no magic potion, right? There isn't people. Um, but yeah. I thought I had it at that time. I was like, okay, so if I get really, really strong and explosive, uh, cause my power clean had gone up to, I want to say 300, 305. Wow. That is OC. <laughs> and it was like, I was like, oh, there, there went my jumping ability. So I was like, okay, this is real cool. So from there, basically what happened is I just realized, you know, my passion isn't in business. It's in training. It's in training other people. Cause I would just always gravitate towards helping other people the entire time. And so I got into to personal training there. I started an internship 
while I was in, in, in college. Um, and then, you know, internship led to becoming a personal trainer, led to me getting my first gig in, in, in basketball. And it was all basically because I thought, you know, there is a reason or there's a way for you to enhance your athleticism. Like, that's what I kind of felt. And that kind of drove me towards that path. Like, you don't have, because when I was younger, I was like, I'm never going to be athletic. You know, that's what I was thinking. And of course, you know, you have a genetic potential, a limit that you can basically get to. Yeah. Right. It's probably higher than you think it is. You're very likely to just not be trained right or missing some kind of piece of the puzzle there. So, you know, I, um, that, that kind of drew me into the field. Um, I first got my, I got my first gig in, in basketball three years ago as a head of strength and conditioning, which was an in-paid internship, which, you know, doesn't really fit the name head of strength and conditioning. <laughs> it's it's kind of, it's semi-professional over here, basketball. So like yeah. at most levels, uh, so it was unpaid, but it was fantastic. Got me, you know, working with athletes, got me able to make the most mistakes I could possibly make uh, and learn from them. So learn on the fly. And then my second year, I, uh, I got a, an offer to go to a bigger team that played European ball. So, you know, if you, once you start playing international level teams, that's, that's of course a, a step up. And at that same time, I uh, got in touch with people that put me in line for the, the national basketball team and the national three on three basketball team. Because basketball is a pretty small, small scene. So when I got in mm-hmm. one team and then I went to another, it's like people start to hear about you and, um, yeah. you know, the right people heard about me and, and they put me in those positions. So now I'm still working with the national teams, the three on three and the, the regular national team. And uh, I've transitioned outside of that into soccer. Uh, soccer is, of course, you know, huge here, humongous. Um, so when yeah. the biggest club in the country offered me. You know, there's just certain things that you have to consider. Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> one, of, one of the things, of course, I mean, you know, soccer is uh, NBA money is here. Soccer money. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. So that, that was kind of, that was a switch I made because long-term I've always told myself, you know, I want to realize my kid's dream, my childhood dream of being Brian Scalabrini, AKA being in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I realized I thought, and I still think so it's better to work in a high performing organization like that soccer team to understand that kind of culture and then be able to fit mm-hmm. that with my knowledge of basketball. When I go to one of those bigger teams in the States, for instance. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty oh, much love my, my path so far. Yes. And obviously you've worked with a bunch of teams, a bunch of very, very high performing teams, um, national team, three on three team, even soccer. Um, a lot of the, the core principles, really hold true when you're at those high levels so um and that's kind of why i wanted to talk a lot about in season today because even in soccer those same principles are going to hold true once you get into the season it's going to be a pretty big shift from the off season or preseason work that you're doing so um this is kind of relevant right now just because right now everyone's been in lockdown um people are going to start going hard because it's the off season now and before you know it everything's been kind of delayed is going to hop straight into the season and a lot of you guys have asked about this um i've seen it seen it on yuri a lot of your q a's um yosem and i both get this a lot how should we train in season um so today that's that's pretty much what we're going to talk about how you should um shift your training in season because if you're training the same way that you are in the off season once you get in that season there's probably a disconnect somewhere so um overall what would you say are some some trends, just some general trends to start it off that you would kind of shift once you once that season begin and begins and once you're playing, you know, two, three nights a week or whatever it may be? Um, what are some kind of general trends that you'll implement into your training? So like the biggest thing I always consider is my programs are set up in a way that during the off season. I have a longer term picture in mind. So it's like long-term athletic development for the players, like the first, first and foremost thing. Like we can leave other things off to the end of the table and we can focus on certain aspects, you know, and really grind and get better at them. And if someone is fatigued, I don't care. You know, if someone's uh, skill session is off that day, as long as me and the skill trainer are in one level and we understand why it is happening at this time, I don't care. Once you get in season, there should be one goal and that's W's, right? That's the biggest thing. Now, of course, depends on what level you are, right? If you're a, at a lower level, let's say high school or even the AU circuit or whatever, maybe that's a little bit less important, but it just comes naturally. People want to win. So the big thing is, so this is what I call it. I switched to a game model. So I switched from mm-hmm. 
regular periodization into periodization for performing in the games during the season. So what that means mostly is when we can grind in the off season, in season, we have to take a step back, look at the big picture for that season and find out when can we put in stressors because training is stress, right? And games are stress. We got to think, okay, they have all these stressors, yet we still want them fresh for the games. So we got to pick certain spots, certain moments. We can still load these guys, but we're not interfering with their performance on court during game day. And I think where a lot of people go wrong is like, oh, you know, let's say normally I lift on, let's say we got a, we got a game just once a week. All right. Let's keep it real simple. And we're used to lifting on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Okay, that's fantastic. But that Friday is going to influence that Saturday. If Saturday is mm-hmm. my game. But what we can do is we have that Monday, Wednesday, Friday. What if we make it Monday and Tuesday? Monday is our heaviest session because it's the furthest point away from our next game. Tuesday might be a little bit lighter. And let's say Thursday is more of a potentiation kind of session. So we're moving fast. Mm-hmm. We're moving light loads really quickly. But we're not really putting in a lot of muscular fatigue for that game on Saturday. Then on Saturday, we're fresh. Sunday, we recover. Monday, we hit a little bit harder again. And that way, you can kind of repeat. Now, of course, that depends totally on your schedule, right? It depends on how many minutes yeah. do you play? What's your role within the team? Um, but to me, like, the biggest thing I look at first is, okay, we switch to a game model. The foremost thing we got to think about is we got to perform on the court during the season. Yeah, I was just going to um, mention one thing. You mentioned the uh, the different levels when it comes to ages with players. So, like, high school players are preparing much differently than professional level players. But let's say, like, at that professional level you uh, with the um, playing time, so some players that don't get as much playing time that don't play as much of a high level, how do you work with those players versus the guys that are a lot more relied on and, and, and accountable in the, in the games? <clears throat> That's, that's a great question, actually. Um, and the reason for that is, is let's say you're a player that's on the fringe of the rotation, right? You're not really getting your minutes right now, but you might be getting them at some point during the season. Or if someone gets hurt, you might be getting their minutes. That means that you have to be physically prepared for the stress of the game when you get called upon. A lot of players that kind of slack, right? Oh, I'm not playing. I'm not playing. I don't, you know, they start working maybe a little bit less. There's, there's the dudes that start working harder. But there's also a lot of them like, no, F this shit. Like, I'm going to yeah. kind of post through it. And then when your number gets cold, you all of a sudden go from zero to 100. Yeah. And you're like, oh, now I got to perform. But your body might not be used to the stress to be able to handle the minutes that a starter or a rotation player gets. So the big thing for me is, okay, we're not getting a certain loading game, right? We're, so if you're outside of rotation, you might get a couple minutes, maybe not even play at all. That means that the players that play get a lot of stressors during that game, let's say 40 minutes of, of workload, and you don't. We have to fill that in. Somewhere mm-hmm. during the week, we mm-hmm. have to up your load to make sure that when you do hit the court, that you are ready for the stressors of being a 40-minute player. Mm-hmm. Because if yeah. you don't, you're going to be unprepared for whatever gets thrown at you once you start playing. I was about to say, do you ever um, like treat a player that, know, that you know that won't get in the game that season like as if it's just the offseason for that player and just um... – continue at the whole off-season program that you had with them originally or yeah basically that 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 comes down to your communication with head coach right if he's like hey you're uh, i'm gonna be honest like this guy's not gonna play if he does it's only gonna be a couple minutes but Mm -hmm. he has weaknesses here and here like let's say he doesn't move well laterally or he needs to put on 15 pounds to be able to compete at this level if he doesn't he'll never make it you know If, if a head coach tells you like this is what i need from this guy uh and if he doesn't do that, we're probably not going to need him. That gives you all the freedom to start working with them. And then yeah. obviously you change the program to, to, to meet their needs. You know, yeah. more intensity, more volume, probably more frequency. And be doing a lot of work because they're not going to get that on court. And maybe also some players, you know, coaches might want them as practice players. They don't want them ready for the game. They want them ready for certain practice days. So let's say they want them to be at their peak shape on uh, the heaviest training day of the week, right? So let's say a bench player, you're like, okay, I want him ready for his, like Wednesday's our roughest session. That's when he needs to perform and show up that he's ready to take that next step to hopefully get off the bench at some time. Mm-hmm. All right, so then we probably might even load him on game day, right? Yeah. We might even load him the day before game day because there's no chance he's going to be in the game. But we got to make sure that he can perform. He's at peak shape and least amount of fatigue at the moment that he has his his peaking moment, which is basically that, that practice session. So that's kind of how you go about it. And I think the biggest thing is you got to have an open communication line with the coach, like the head coach, 
and the yeah. players themselves. And if you're a player and like, you know, you're, you're not in the rotation or you might be, you know, right on the edge or whatever, try to talk to your coaching staff, you know, try to understand what are they expecting from me right now? Where do they want me to go? Because there's probably steps that you can be taking that's more specific for your path to yeah, become exactly. a better basketball player. That's long-term going to help you help the team too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that. And I think for a lot of those players, you, you just have to consider like, what are we not getting in the game? So other guys are playing 40 minutes a game. Um, so they don't have to do much supplemental conditioning during the season. Like those games kind of serve as a conditioning. What else are we missing out on? Um, obviously, we're getting a lot of volume just in the game, playing a ton, um, which is why we may have to load the guys who aren't playing with more volume. Another thing that kind of comes to mind is just those elastic comp contacts, elastic ground contacts that you get in a game. So what do you think about kind of supplementing those guys with maybe some more extensive plyos, um, continuing like a plyo progression in, in season with them? So if you know they're not playing, would you continue to um, progress the plyometric work? Or, um, and then kind of talk about how that would differ from the guys that aren't playing a lot. Like, do you ever do plyometrics with them in season? Um, where you can fit them in? Um, really just plyometrics in season between the players that don't play and the players that do play. Where, where do you kind of stand on that? I mean, that that's two of the, like, the biggest questions I've had to answer for myself the mm -hmm. past couple of years. Like, in-season plyometrics, like that's a huge key to, to be able to, to, to understand why you would and wouldn't do it and then put that into your decision-making process. Like, yeah. our, like our sport is all plyometric. Like basketball, like mm -hmm. you said, the amount of ground contact you have during the game, the amount of jumps, cuts, yeah. accelerations, like the amount of movements that are plyometric in nature that we make as basketball players is enormous. And for me, it's like during the off season, I want to make someone better as an athlete within their sport. So we're going to progress plyometrics because we want to make them one resilient towards plyometric movements once we get to the season and we want them to be able to perform better. Right. So get them to jump higher, sprint faster, et cetera. Now, when I get in season, I'm probably not going to give them more of what they're getting in uh, on court because they're already there. They are macro dosing the shit out of, out of those movements. Like that's what they're continuously doing. Now, if someone has a, a, uh, a movement pattern that's less than ideal, I will definitely spend time on that, even if it's plyometric, because there could be inherent risk carried with that movement pattern, right? Yeah. Yeah. But if the players get a lot of exposure throughout the season for plyometric movements, and then I add on top more plyometric movements, because you know mm -hmm. that's what our sport is, so we need to get better at it probably adding more and more to the same thing is only going to overflow that bucket of physical adaptation. And I think personally, we're probably going to be pushing more towards injury than than actually increasing yeah. performance. Mm -hmm. So if I have players that make get a lot of minutes, I'm not doing, doing very much plyometric work with them. So we might, what we generally do is in season, we'll do some extensive plyometrics barefoot throughout mm -hmm. the extended part of our warmup. So once we get towards yeah. the end of part of our warmup, We'll do some extensive jumps, um, but that's more for an ankle risk yeah. reduction kind of thing more than anything else. Like I'm not trying to make them more springy. I'm just trying to get their contact yeah. with their foot and their brain and the floor, how that mm -hmm. operates, how that works together. That's what I'm trying to refine in season so that also when we get off season, hey, we got that, that box is checked off. Like we've been working barefoot. Like these dudes mm -hmm. understand that contact. Um, so we might do some stuff there, but like, and let's say someone needs power development, but I want to minimize their impact. We might do some plyometrics where we're jumping onto a higher, higher object. So let's say we're doing some box jumps, right? Where we're still getting that stretch shortening cycle, um, but we're not getting the, the impact of the landing because we're jumping onto a higher object. Mm -hmm. So that could be a thing that we could be doing. If I want to work a little bit more ballistic power, you know, a big thing for me is I use a lot of medicine ball drills in season. Throw balls, all kinds of directions, different loads. We're able to utilize the stretch shortening cycle in a beautiful manner, but we're not actually becoming ballistic pro uh, projectiles, basically, ourselves. We don't leave the ground, meaning the impact is probably going to be a lot less. Mm -hmm. uh, lastly, right. like dudes that have exposure to Olympic weightlifting, that's, again, mm -hmm. ballistic power, but we don't have that landing phase, especially if we just do pulls and don't even do the catch. Right. So those are mm -hmm. options for me to kind of work power and aspects of what could be considered plyometrics 
but I don't overflow them with the same thing that they do over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Now, like you said, if someone doesn't get that exposure, oh, heck yeah. You know, we're, we're attacking plyometrics year round. There's no reason not to. Yeah. Right? yeah. Especially if I already know this guy isn't going to be playing for a long time. Fantastic. Well, not for him, of course, but for the <laughs> physical, yeah. physical development and maybe even skill development too. Like mm -hmm. I can ride a longer sequence a block periodization basically where I say, okay, yeah. for two months, we're going to be focusing primarily on this two months. We're going to be focusing primarily mm -hmm. on that. And we're going to try to build from, from quality on quality on, on quality, basically how the literature says that you're supposed to evolve as an athlete and it's right. not going to interfere. Well, if someone is playing, we can't be doing that. We can't yeah. have something as rigid as saying, Oh, this block, we're only doing this, this block, we're only doing that because you're in season. Um, right. So yeah, when, if if someone is a, doesn't have that exposure to plyometric movements in during the game, I'll definitely supplement it. And if they do, I'll try to work around it and give them what they're not getting exposed to on the court, basically. I love it, and I think I think two things that really stood out there. One is once you get in season, it kind of shifts from structural to neural a bit. So like you were saying, barefoot kind of extensive, um, more so ankle-focused plyometrics. Obviously, that's more of a neural focus. Um, you're going to get away from a lot of volume. You're going to get away from um, even down to just like pretty much everything just shifts a little bit, if not a lot, to just more so the mind rather than building up those structural components. Two, um, and this is something I wanted to get to later anyway, so I'm glad you brought up the ballistics um, do you take out like the eccentric portion of a, of a lot of movements? Because obviously um, eccentric portions can be a lot more taxing, especially in terms of muscle soreness. Um, so let's say on the ballistics, do you or would you consider going like solely the concentric, just like a, like a med ball throw, um, solely the concentric, just focus on getting that rate of force development, but without that kind of eccentric portion, that's going to be a little bit more taxing. Right. Um... Yeah, yes, yes, I know. I, I think one thing the basketball season is too long to neglect yeah. certain things, right? You yeah, know, definitely. if you have a season of three months and I just don't do any strength for those three months and then nine months I can build it up, hmm, probably gonna yeah. be fine. But if I have nine month season for a lot of these guys, maybe even longer, yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah. I am not training any eccentric or isometric uh, qualities and I'm just focusing right. on, you know, what's least fatiguing. I'm probably not setting myself up for long-term athletic mm -hmm. development. Like I'm going to get up during the off season. And then basically during the season, it just gradually goes down, 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 and down. Mm -hmm. If it goes down, injury risk probably rises, right? Because our fatigue or right. fitness levels now are lower. We're not capable of mm -hmm. what we were able to produce. So, you know, I, I try to keep as much of it in there. Um, I do have some of these concentric only lifts in there. Let's say we have a lift set up a couple days before a game and i know some yeah. players get a little bit too much fatigue from certain uh let's say from a back squat right where we got a couple guys that love back squatting okay you know we do a back squat but they can could get potentially some doms now i don't want doms on the game right during the game right no, Makes yeah. sense. um but what if we do an anderson front squat so we start in the we start on pins barbell starts in the bottom of a squat they just stand up mm -hmm. toss it back down when they're done or they just release real quickly so all we get is that concentric stimulus, right? Where we're still working strength, but we don't have that eccentric strain from lengthening the muscle. Now, right. is that always going to be the case? Not at all. But in certain situations, I'll definitely use some of that kind of stuff. And that's mostly on days when we're getting closer to a, to a game day. If we're far away from a game day, I mean, I don't care. But let's say we're in the yeah. NBA about three days, right? Or let's say, yeah, we got two days in between. One day is going to be a travel day. Maybe on that day, I might do some micro dosing for strength and it could be concentric mm -hmm. only. As long as you also yeah. look for those moments where you can hit the full package, eccentric, isometric, and concentric qualities in the same, in the same lift or in, within the yeah. same uh, session. No, I like that. And I think that's also kind of an area where isometrics could be huge in season because you're not getting full range of motion or even kind of partial range of motion, but especially isometrics because um yeah you're not getting that full range of motion you're still getting that strength stimulus if you're doing it the right way um getting a neural stimulus as well and that's that's a place where i've seen a lot of, of guys who work in team settings really kind of make that shift to isometrics 
um, for that reason exactly. So I think that could definitely be huge um, in an in-season setting. Um, you also mentioned, you also mentioned like, let's say NBA, you have two two days in between. So you have the game, say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, next games Thursday. And I've seen guys in the NBA who are lifting post game. Like I saw James Harden's done it before, um, and I've talked to some guys who who have actually made it, you know, kind of a, a routine to finish the game, especially home games, obviously, because you have more access. Finish the game, go knock out your lift, and that's where you get your strength stimulus. Then you have two days to recover. What 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 are your kind of thoughts on that? You know, I think for one, like if you would look at it purely from a strength and conditioning perspective, like if, if you were to not look at everything else and you're just looking at a strength and conditioning coach, you're probably punching yourself in the stomach because basically what's happening is you have a fatigued athlete that now yeah. does different strength work. It's like one, we have inherently higher risk. You know, if someone is fatigued, yeah. and then we lift. And then number two, their outputs are going to be so much lower. Mm-hmm. But if we are talking to them, yay, and we are taking our little biased strength and conditioning glasses off, we've got to look at the bigger mm-hmm. picture. If we got to do that to be able to have the players be ready on game day the next for the next game, and this allows yeah. you to get their lifting without them having to, you know, get all these negative connotations to having to train hard during the mm-hmm. season. Like if, if getting them in after the game keeps, makes them happy and they enjoy doing it and they get their work in, even if it's less intensity, less volume than what yeah. they could potentially do, but they feel ready for the next game, I'm more than fine. The big thing yeah. I would say, though, is if you do something after the game, I would stay away from high-risk factor exercise so let's say you know i wouldn't go too much on the the compound exercise i would probably go more unilateral stuff right less risk inherently um i wouldn't do anything powerful anything Mm -hmm. where speed of movement determines the efficiency and the effectiveness of the exercise so let's say what's the what's the freaking point of doing a medicine ball throw if you only throw it three feet in the air when you can throw it right there's not really a point like we need speed for that exercise to matter same thing with, let's say, a clean or a snatch. But we can do a split squat, a Bulgarian split squat or a deficit reverse lunge. We can do that mm-hmm. and move submaximally in speed and we'll still be fine. We can still get an adaptation from it at best, best case or maybe worst case just for maintenance of strength, yeah. which is fine. Because in season, we don't have to get stronger. That's what the off season is for. Like ideally, mm-hmm. it'd be nice if we can get them stronger. But if we're talking about a guy that needs to lift after the game, so they're not fatigued for the next, they're probably not going to be able to increase their strength during the season because they have much too high of a workload. So then it's all about maintenance. And if I can get that maintenance working immediately after and they're they're fresh for their next game, hey, run with it. I'm more than happy to. Yeah. No, I think it, it comes down to just a lot of times in seasons, just take what you can get. Like players – Personally, a lot, most of them that I've known, I mean, basketball players, the whole kind of thing is like they're allergic to the weight room, quote unquote. And then once you get in season and they have practice every day um, and, and you have structured lifts, like it can it can really take a toll. And I think finding ways that kind of caters to them is is big in season. Even like you said, if, if we as, as strength guys are just like really getting anxious about it, like this is not optimal not everything's going to be optimal in season. It's just, it's the way it is. And finding ways to kind of just take what you can get um, and, and, and maintain that strength rather than continuing to progress throughout the season is sometimes the most that we can do, which it takes a little bit to kind of put that, that bias aside, but you know, it's, it's player first mentality and, it, and however you can get it, you, you just got to take it sometimes. I th- and I think that's a, that's a that's a huge point right there. It's like it's about the player. It's not about us. Yeah. Like it's, it's not yeah. about me at all. It's about the player. And if if a player like I can't fault them for not enjoying the weight room as much. Like they play a game. Like mm-hmm. that's what they do. They play basketball. Like that's mm-hmm. what they get paid yeah. for. We use the weight room. We use physical development, physical education, basically to get them to to equip them to become better athletes, which in turn can help them become better players. Mm-hmm. But eventually they signed up to play the sport. This is something that you do to get better at the sport. Yeah. So I have to somewhere meet them halfway 
to make sure that they start enjoying the weight room. Because the only way you're going to get someone to buy in for 15, 20 years, way after they've ever worked with me, right? They're working with seven other strength coaches by that time. Like the only way that they'll stay engaged for that long is if they enjoy the process. That's right. the yeah. only way. Because again, in season, maybe the first couple of years, you might make some gains, right? Beginner gains, it's fantastic. After a yeah. while, wow, that becomes less and less and less and becomes more about maintenance. And then it becomes mm -hmm. you know, making sure that I don't regress in general because I'm getting older. And it's like the only way you keep them attached to the importance of physical development and you know staying physically prepared is if they enjoy the process. Don't have to find it fun. Like I work with a bunch yeah. of guys that work really, really hard in the weight room, but they don't like it at all. Yeah. But they go in because they know they need it. Yeah. But I still, right. I, I listen to them. I understand what they're saying. And they don't know that I'm meeting them halfway the entire time. They have no yeah. idea. But they yeah. gone from not wanting to show up to just being there every time and just being like, nah, you're, I don't want to be here. Okay, fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. great. You're here. You're doing your work. I'm yeah. happy. Yeah. You're, you're secretly happy. You just don't want to tell me. Yeah. So I have a, I have a, I have a question in terms of recovery in the in-season. So we talked about how in-season is a lot more of a load when it comes to all the games and all the weight rooms and practice sessions. So how do you approach in-season recovery versus off-season recovery? Uh, I love that question too. And because um, this, this is big, like everyone's, you know, about the cryotherapy and the dry needling and, and everything you can do to kind of enhance recovery in-season. Oh, hell yeah. Like we're using anything and everything to make you feel happy. Biggest good meals, sleep well, you know, mm. do stuff that you want to do. If you want to play video games, if that makes you feel well, if, if, if you know, if you're going to be swiping on Tinder for two hours straight, I don't <laughs> like whatever you got to do, you know, do to be happy. Like I'm, yeah. I'm good. Um, and like you said, even if something maybe hasn't been proven, like let's mm. say, you know, the effectiveness of something like foam rolling or static stretching, but if that makes you feel good, my guy, we're going for it. Like we're running with that. Oh, kind of stuff. Yeah. As long as it doesn't, you know, as, as long as literature doesn't say it gets worse, mm -hmm. yeah. if it's just a placebo effect, like we're good, we're running with it. But off season, I want these guys to get accustomed to stressors. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to consistently be using all these modalities for recovery. I want to save that for the point when they're in season, mm -hmm. right? If we're always using the cryotherapy and whatever tools uh, you want to be using and then slowly along the way it kind of loses its value for a lot of people but if yeah. you don't use it for a while and then you reuse something mm -hmm. generally you'll get a much better effect from it mm -hmm. so off season i'm trying to keep them away from it i'm trying to actually make their body get accustomed to the stressor mm -hmm. yes i want you to feel feel the doms you know i want to i mm -hmm. want you to feel the fatigue because i don't want the the i don't want you to recover so that you're able to train sooner. No, like, or, you know, sooner than you probably should be training. Yeah. yeah. Let's say for instance, uh, um, the DOM should prevent you from training the next day, but because you're using all these recovery modalities, you are training the next day, but you're probably not yeah. fully recovered. I don't want you training that right. day. I want you to train when you're ready to go again, but mm -hmm. easy, you got to perform like every, yeah. every day is going to be rough and you're going to feel pretty bad physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever throughout the season, you know, use whatever tools you can. So when we're in season, I'm definitely running with anything that makes them happy. Mm -hmm. You know, good food, any recovery modality or swiping Tinder, whatever you got to do. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Do you have, hey, really though, do you have, do you have any metrics that you use? Um, or is it more of just more so like subjective stuff, talking to you guys, understanding where their mind and body is at, or do you have some some measures that just, I know some guys will take um, just kind of keep track of like vertical jump trends in it um, or is it more subjective? Right. Um, you know, to be honest, like it, it for one, it depends on your your availability of these tools. Right. A lot of stuff yeah. is very expensive. Like um, it it kind of depends. So I've I've used a lot of different tools. For instance, let's mm -hmm. say you have vertical jump. So a lot of people use vertical jump as a way to measure readiness, like once a week, twice a week, before a game, after a game, yeah. whenever. And they would say, you know, if, if your vertical jump is lower, it would indicate that you are more fatigued. Mm -hmm. But there are certain factors that we got to take into consideration. An athlete can still get the same jump output, but with different jump mechanics. 
So yeah. let's say I'm just looking at jump output and I got a 25 standing, standing vert on week one and 25 on week 24. But week 24, he had a totally different way of jumping. Let's say he took a deeper dip to get that same yeah. jump output. Mm -hmm. Is he truly not fatigued because his jump out input is the same? Or maybe he took a different approach because he is fatigued mm -hmm. and different mechanics. So it's, it's kind of hard to take anything away from that. Like, you know, if you have force plates, you know, you're good to go. Like you can measure anything yeah. like how deep someone dips, like asymmetries left and right, time to peak mm -hmm. force, all that good stuff. Like we can take a lot away, but hey, not everyone has 10 grand just laying in the back of their van, ready to buy a force plate and do some jumps on them. And also, is that going to be worth it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I think something like RPEs for yourself, something like yeah. that. So rate of perceived exertion. So basically asking someone on a, a scale of one to five or one to 10, how they're feeling um, or how, like how uh, difficult a session was, that's free, right? Yeah. You would need someone to analyze that data for you. You need a good coach or a good sports scientist for it. So then again, you know, is it really realistic? I And to be honest, I haven't worked with a couple different tools by now. The biggest thing is just getting to know your players. Like with the three on three national team last year, uh, we were running, you know, we were going for the, well, actually it was 2020 was still this year. It feels like last year. Yeah. Uh, we, were going, we were going for the Olympics. You know, we had our qualifying tournament set up in, uh, in, April, in May and in, uh, in June. And um, we had a re really rough camp leading in. And so we worked a lot with, with uh, RPEs and trying to monitor. And basically after a couple weeks, I was fully able when someone would walk in, I would t tell another player, he's a six right now. Like for his readiness, ready, or readiness rating. It's like, he's a six. We'll walk in. How much? Six. Okay. Next person. Seven. Walking in, being a douchebag. That's 6.8. I'm like, okay. <laughs> the same right? I think the biggest thing is having a relationship. So for me as a coach, having a relationship with my players, walking up yeah. to them, talking to them, understanding them and who they are and how they respond, right? Some person, when they're, when they're tired, they might try to try to fake themselves out of it. Like, no, 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 coach, I'm not, I'm not tired. And someone else yeah. might walk in grumpy. You got to be able to understand these differences. Got to understand mm -hmm. your players because then you can like a good coach will never, ever, ever be replaceable. I don't care how much data we yeah. have data without context is just numbers. It's a context, which the coach provides that actually determines whether, you know, it's worth it worth a damn. So, you know, there's a lot of different things, but to me, it's, it's looking to player, looking at players, talking to them. Um, and also for players, Hey, be open. If, if there yeah. is someone looking at your readiness data, like maybe even just in, in, in confidence, talk to them about certain things. You know, I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling that way. And, you know, maybe ask them whether they can't tell coach if you're feeling a certain type of way or whatever, because, you know, maybe you're afraid of not being able to get minutes, you know, some head coaches can be, pretty rough on you mm -hmm. um but keep an open communication line with the person that is looking at your readiness and you know try to try to stay honest with them um because they probably have your best interest in at heart and you do too and you're just trying to perform but having someone measure your readiness accurately can help you a lot you know yeah and i, I always tell people like there's not and this goes for for most things in the performance and, and, and recovery side is there's really never one metric for pretty much anything I, that I can think of that just, that's the one, that's like the one thing that you can measure, we're good, like we, we got it, we can rank it. It's like, it's everything has to be so like completely holistic. And I think the recovery process is such a, such a, there's so much that goes into it that one metric or even a number like five six metrics vertical jump you're on force plays you can produce less force but that's just because you care less that day and you care less doesn't mean you're fatigued it could mean that but it just could mean because you've done it every day you're coming in you're like all right screw this like we do a fucking force plate j vertical jump every day i don't really care as much today there's so much that goes into that and really the best assessment is taking all those factors into consideration so the subjective stuff talking to your athletes watch how they train um every training session is an assessment um if they're just if they're if you're noticing that they're just not working out with that same level of intensity 
that's going to show that they're fatigued to me or that again that's one metric so it's pretty ironic that i say that um that's part of what you know that talking to them maybe take a vertical jump um all the metrics you want to take all the conversations with them with your athletes that you want to have you have to consider it all in one and then start to make that kind of judgment kind of that feel um and take it from there but uh, it's too it's too tough to kind of go with one and I always tell people that all the time I'm, I'm sure you've seen all the time like what's the best one vertical jump exercise or what's the best um, exercise what's the best program what's the best this everyone's kind of looking for that magic pill and that kind of transfers over to trainers where it's like all right what's the best metric for this you have to take in so much into consideration and I think that, that was a great answer for that reason um, so I, I couldn't agree more, you know, everything, like same thing with the, with the exercise, like it's context dependent. Every, yeah. Context is always continuously king. Like mm-hmm. I don't care whatever exercise is supposed to be fantastic. If it doesn't suit you, it doesn't suit you. It's actually funny. Like uh, one thing I've, I've noticed that I've, I have used as readiness and it, I haven't monitored it at all, logged it, anything. But since we do a lot of medicine ball work for power development or you know, maintenance, whatever, during the season, yeah. we generally very often have some kind of granny toss in there. Now, the yeah. funny thing is like, if I do a vertical granny toss, like most of these guys will be very competitive, you know, they'll, yeah, they'll yeah. have some beam that they're trying to hit. And we have, we perfectly have like a kind of beam that's right on the edge where some people hit it, some people barely. <laughs> it. From session to session, sometimes all of a sudden, one of these guys throws it like three to 12 feet lower. And other wow. times, all of a sudden, they just bang it against the beam. And yeah. that tells me so much of a difference. Also, wow. if they hit it, how are they responding? Are they doing, mm. or are they, you know, arms raised up in the air like rock? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I, I can measure their, I can look at them and realize how energetic and happy they kind of are. You know, because if they're happy, they're generally competitive and they'll want to show off. And if they're not, they'll kind of fade into the background, even if they perform well. Or, you know, are they just really fatigued and they're not throwing as high? And again, it's not something that I can put a number on. I'm not analyzing it on force play data, but it's just a great way to tell whether these dudes are in some kind of training shape and ready to ready to handle business that day. So it's pretty fun. That's fucking awesome. And I, the fact that you have a beam like perfectly set up like that, <laughs> that that's how you know it was meant to be. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we'll get into one more topic and that's going to be specificity. So in season, off season, what's the difference in how specific your training is? Um, even soccer, um, basketball as well, kind of the same principles, like I said. Will you go from more specific to less specific, less specific to more specific, kind of the same? What's your kind of stance on that? Okay, so for me to be able to answer that question, like I got I to gotta bring it back to my, my overall philosophy when I'm working with athletes. And that's, I basically have like a pyramid approach, right? I want my players to be good human beings. You know, pure, pure physical, like any human being should be able to push, pull, hinge, squat, lunge, carry objects, resist motions at the spine, produce force, all that kind of stuff. Like any human being should be able to. So if you're a high level athlete, I don't care whether you're a boxer, play, play hoops, you know, whether you're a baseball player, a pitcher, whatever, I don't care. You got to be able to do all these movements. Mm-hmm. Now, then on top of that, on my pyramid, like I want you to be, be a good athlete. I don't even look at your sport, but you're an athlete, meaning you are probably in some way going to have to put a lot of force into the ground or into an object or another human being at some point in time. Let's just say that that's a given, right? And whether you play table tennis or you play regular tennis, like you're going to put force into the ground or into an object. So I think that's the second thing. Like I want to make them good, robust athletes. Are they fast? Are they strong? You know, um, all that kind of stuff, you know, can they produce force in different kinds of movement planes? So can they rotate? Can they move laterally? And then we get to the point where it's specific to the sport. So this is like kind of the top of the pyramid. So an overall athletic development, the top. Okay. So we have an athlete that's able to move well, they're able to produce force. Now we have to do it specifically to their sport. You know, basketball has certain types of change direction that it's really highly characterized by. Um, another thing, let's say, uh, a rebound, a tip in and a second jump, right? So the first ball gets tipped up. You both hit the ground, which player comes off the ground first. Again, he's probably going to get to that ball, right? Stuff like that. 
um, being able to jump high off one foot while another sport might only jump off two feet. So that kind of things then starts to become more and more of a difference. Mm -hmm. um, so as we gradually move through this continuum, continuum as a, as a, uh, and a progression as an athlete, like we become better as a human, better as an athlete, better within our sport. So in this mm -hmm. case, a basketball player. Now in season, in the off season, it's basically kind of the same. At the end of the season, generally players are a little bit banged up, right? They might not move well as a human being. They might have some restrictions, you know, banged up my shoulder, had an impingement there, or I might have some patellar tendinopathy, like 80% of y'all, like all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. We might have to get rid of first, right? In my eyes, that's I'm going to make them better humans again. I'm going to make them move better, underload them a little bit because they've been overloaded for nine months now. I want to take some time to take that away. Then after I've done that, I want to build back up. So I got these movement patterns right again. Let's hope we're pain-free. And now I can start building you back up into an athlete again. So slowly we're going from least specific human being to more and more and more specific. Now, whatever a player needs will determine how long each phase is. Let's say a player needs a lot of strength, just max strength. He's too, too, uh, too small. Okay, we might have out of those three months, we might spend two months purely just working a lot of strength. And we'll supplement with some power work and more specific work on the sides. But that strength work is the biggest thing because we can't do everything at the same time. That's a huge right. pitfall, trying to do everything at the same time. And then that last month, we might go a little bit more towards our specific stuff. And we kind of stop load, uh, loading the max strength a little bit. Now, someone else might be very strong, but they might not be able to exert that force quickly enough to be able to move fast. So that could be another case. So now maybe the first two months, I am just maintaining strength. I'm not even thinking about pushing it, but I'm slowly gradually exposing them to more faster movements, faster movements, faster movements. We peak that right before the preseason and we retest, see whether these guys have improved in whatever capacity or whatever quality you're trying to improve. And we start the season again and we drop down whatever we've been doing. So it kind of depends on the player, but we always go from least specific to most specific throughout the off season. Mm. Now, my goal is to make them a better basketball player, or sorry, that's not the best way to word it. Give them the opportunity to become a better basketball player by making them a better athlete, right? I can't make a, mm -hmm. player, a better basketball player. That's not my job. Yeah. I can only give a coach, like, good athletes. Like, here you go. More of us, I can play basketball. Like, now you've got to give them skill. Like, I'm not going to make them shoot. Um, mm -hmm. So I've, I've hopefully done that, and that's the end of my offseason. I've tried to get them as specific as possible, better within the, the key performance indicators of their sport. In season, like I said, we're already overloading some of these things. Like, for instance, like you said, conditioning. Okay, if you play a lot in, on conditioning in season, I'm not going to give you additional conditioning that's specific to your sport. Let's say that you're a big guy, and we've measured out that you're – Conditioning is too low, whatever test you've done, right? It's not good enough, but you are also highly likely to get patellar tendinopathy. You've already had it and you tend to always get it back when you do a lot of running. You know, if, let's say you're seven feet, 250, the odds of that becoming a little bit higher, of course, when you start running. So maybe in season, we could supplement his game, like his, his game minutes and his workload on the court by doing additional biking, non-specific, but it could be something that could assist him in getting better at whatever is specific. Mm -hmm. So basically what I'm trying to say there is like, if I'm in season, I'm not really thinking specific if they have a high workload yeah. on court. I'm thinking, what are they not getting on court? Mm -hmm. Probably yeah. that's general strength development, maintenance, and anything along those lines. And then in the off season, we can push that really specific work. There is one thing I have to say there that's very important. It depends one on your level, and like we already discussed earlier, what's your workload on court? And two, how long is your season? If you have an 11-month season, you're only taking a month off, that month is too short to just be working specifically because you now have 11 months where you're not doing anything towards that. So maybe you can discuss with coach or whatever you got to do to kind of have certain phase of the year where you are allowed to push a little bit more towards physical development or skill development or whatever because mm -hmm. an 11-month season is just too long to not be doing anything. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. I just have a question comparing to soccer because you've had a pretty um strong background in soccer. So how do you prepare? Um, and so so soccer has a lot of different components in basketball. There's a lot more of an endurance and aerobic component to it. So when you're doing your in-season training, how do you differentiate between like anaerobic preparation 
versus the aerobic preparation versus basketball or basketball versus soccer? Um, so, so soccer in general is, is, is a lot more of an, uh, an aerobic sport. It's 90 minutes of continuous running, uh, yeah. but characterized also by max velocity sprinting. That's a huge yeah. difference mm-hmm. between basketball and, and soccer. Soccer has, yeah. or basketball has no max velocity. The court is too short to actually be hitting those numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, while basketball is a lot more anaerobic. So for those who don't know, like anaerobic is more the interval kind of work and aerobic is more the long duration. Mm-hmm. So the big thing is, your conditioning is always going to happen in your sport. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to get in basketball mm-hmm. shape, like we all know this, like you're, you're banging out and you know, on the assault bike and, and the rower and whatever, <laughs> and you've been running yeah. five, you've been running five miles a day and like yeah. you get back on court and you play two games. You're like, man, I'm winning. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, yeah. I was in shape. And then three weeks later, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I'm in peak shape. Mm-hmm. You feel mm-hmm. fantastic. The only thing, the stuff you've been doing that far is prepared you to be able to handle the court whatever you do on the court better so that you can then build on top of it and get in basketball shape by playing basketball. Mm-hmm. All the other conditioning stuff is going to be supplementary. Yeah. It's only going to help in assisting the basketball work to get your conditioning right. You can't you can get in basketball shape in any other way but play basketball. Mm-hmm. But we can do conditioning to prepare us for playing basketball mm-hmm. because basically we have three intertwining energy systems that work together to yeah. produce energy. And basically that forms what's called conditioning, right? Mm-hmm. And these three, generally we work one or two out of those three, a little bit more in one sport, right? We tend to have the majority of our energy coming from uh, a singular energy system, even though they're all intertwined and they work together, right? So for instance, soccer may be a little bit more aerobic and basketball a little bit more anaerobic. Mm-hmm. That means that probably if we're training for being able to play on the court, maybe I actually give the other energy systems a boost there. Maybe I actually work the energy systems that aren't being worked when we're on the basketball court. So for instance, if I work with my guys and I work during the off season and I have a fantastic guy here, skills coach that we, we work together as much as we can. And mm-hmm. he does the on court specific conditioning. Mm-hmm. I just supplement. I give him for instance, a lot of aerobic work mm-hmm. that builds yeah injury resiliency, right? The, the, the data on aerobic capacity and uh, uh, injury rates, very well known. Like I might work on that. I might work anaerobic alactic, so which is on the other end of the spectrum through sprints and maximal uh, intent change direction drills or, or agility drills. And then everything that's in the middle, everything that's so basketball specific, hey, I gotta get you with a ball in your hand and nine other dudes on that same court or nine yeah. other girls on that same court, and you better be hooping because that's the way you're going to get better there. The other mm-hmm. stuff, you need to rest for that or go slower than you want to go. Mm-hmm. So that's where I come in because I know most of these dudes aren't going to be doing that themselves. Yeah, yeah. I like it. And a little bit, this is kind of off topic, but um, speaking of specificity in soccer and basketball, have you ever gotten your basketball guys to play soccer just like, day off type thing or like warm up whatever it may be have you ever gotten them on the field to play soccer Nah, it's i mean you like basketball players look down on soccer players that, that's <laughs> they, literally, they literally look down on soccer players uh, nah, actually one of my guys saw a video from james harrison doing uh doing uh, medicine ball uh volleyball volleyball yeah, yeah. They were like, yeah. Oh, we yeah. gotta get this indoor in our power block I'm like, dang, you really saying during our power block? Like, I'm, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll get the medicine balls out just because you understood what, I, what phase we're in. <laughs> Damn, that's crazy. That's <laughs> education. Like, the soccer dudes are like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I'll be able to play basketball. I'm like, nah. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're five, six, my guy. Like, <laughs> yeah. five, you are going to get your ass whooped the moment you step into in between those lines. But it's funny, it's like, they're so different. They're so different, they're not comparable at all. They're so different body types, way they move, what they're expected to do. Like mm-hmm. one, your wrist is everything, the other, your foot is everything, mm-hmm. right? They're yeah, both that's true, yeah. Two dominant sports, like, you know, if you if you compare uh, Messi to, to Steph Curry, right? It's like they both move so majestically and they have so much control yeah. over the object that they're playing with. It's beautiful, but it's so mm-hmm. different. They can't yeah, be yeah. at all. Is there one t- is there one type of athlete that you feel just out of curiosity that's um a lot easier to train? Like is a basketball player a lot easier to train than or simpler to train? 
or are they just like equally complex? No, soccer players are easier to train. Well, physically speaking, mentally, not so much. Like if you, if you think basketball players are deepest in the weight room, like you have not. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it's very like, it's not in their system, system and culture to do strength training. So yeah, like, you yeah. know, that's not what they're used to. So they don't like it as much. Um, mm-hmm. But basketball players, like we're talking dudes with limbs, you know, like, yeah. like I always compare them. Like they're seven foot spiders or, 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 yeah. or like some, some huge animal like run towards the other end of the of the planet and it's like yeah it it, all these weight room exercises are made for a certain body type the Mm. average human being like if let's let's say we look at the clean and the snatch right if you look at the body type of an olympic weightlifter they are literally the opposite they're alligators yeah they got long torsos these little ass paws on the side yeah Yeah. (laughs) ridiculous but that's perfect for squatting that's perfect for catching yeah. weight your head because the shorter your limbs the easier it is to stabilize now yeah. we have a basketball player that's the exact opposite and they're seven feet compared yeah. to five foot four it's it's like it couldn't be more different so all these these traditional tools in the weight room that we're all using and like this is the best thing since since peanut butter and jelly it's like you know maybe it is for those people mm-hmm. but for this group of athletes that i'm working with we got to work around those kind of things. Yeah, like yeah. you make a trap bar or you make a regular barbell, a lot of these dudes aren't even going to be able to reach the floor. Like they're not yeah, going to be able yeah, to get into position. Yeah. So I got to make a lot of adjustments. Now, soccer players look a lot more like if you have 100 soccer players, I guarantee you, if you have a lot of people coming by, they'll say that maybe 20 or like they're going to guess that they're athletes and mm-hmm. 80, they're just going to guess that they're regular ass dudes. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> if I have them in the weight room, like I don't have to adjust. Like anybody can do a regular trap bar deadlift, a regular box squat, a deep squat, all that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. then if I work with the basketball players, I got to make a lot more adjustments. But to yeah. me, part like I really enjoy that. Like I love exercise selection and playing around and trying mm-hmm. to chase an adaptation and a stimulus. But you know that like to the point where it doesn't matter what the exercise is. Like I'm just trying to fit what fits the purse, find what fits the, the athlete and the person as best as possible. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's real cool. Like I, I appreciate that so much about working with basketball players because it's mm-hmm. fun, right? Yeah. It yeah. got to be a little bit more creative in what kind of exercise I give them. So yeah. just being like, oh, here's squat bench dead. Let's go. Yeah. 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 That creativity is, is something that it's, it's a skill too. And you just have to think around problems and barriers that will present themselves and it's kind of <clears throat> relating it back to in season stuff is is it's an even becomes magnified in season when you if you become married to one like you said to kind of start off the episode like if you become married to that monday wednesday friday you're like all right screw if we have a game on on saturday we're gonna keep lifting that same schedule everyone's gonna do the same thing it's not gonna turn out well period everyone i think in season especially you really have to just to kind of conclude it, you really have to understand everyone's needs, understand everyone, what they're doing, how much they're playing, um, how they how they recover, how they adapt, um, what stimulus works for this person, which stimuli works for this other person, um, and really kind of consider all of it on a much more holistic level once you're in season. And if you don't do that, you're not only setting yourself up to, you know, not maintain and lose strength but also for injury and obviously we <laughs> we don't want that um so don't get that just my advice and then I'll, I'll i'll get your closing remarks um just don't become married to a certain training regimen you know don't don't continue that same periodization from the off season or the preseason really consider what everyone needs um get to know your athletes and get to know how they will react to what they're doing what you give them and be able to think on the fly you got anything to add to that no that 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 hits it right that that's exactly the same thing the same way i look at it man it's just you know off season we can be a lot more rigid but in season you got to be adaptable like if there's one word i got to put on in season like be adaptable that's that's the biggest thing if you can adapt yeah because you know one thing that characterizes in season training playing whatever it is that some shit is going to happen we know when but it's going to happen you're going to get hurt you're going to get a little aches and pains you're going to have to play when you didn't think you were going to play practice are going to be harder your girlfriend's going to break up with you 
and yeah. you're down and you're still going to have to perform like that's in season so if i can just say one thing just be adaptable that's the biggest yeah i love it yo so you got anything to say yeah, just uh, just uh, um, I wanted to talk about this earlier when we were talking about how to uh, if you don't really get that much time. So for the players that really don't get that much time in their high school teams or middle school or AU teams or wherever you play, look at that as an opportunity to kind of get a step ahead of the the people that aren't don't have the luxury that you have to work as or put on a load and train at a higher intensity that they can't. So don't look at it as if you should be training the same way they are. Take that opportunity, take that time to really just get in the gym, get in the weight room, work on your skills. You could do it at a lot more of a higher rate than they can, so try to look at it, look at it as a, a way to get ahead instead of something to hold you back. Especially as a younger guy, like, and most of the guys who aren't getting playing time yet, they're inherently younger guys, they're still developing. Uh, the worst thing that you can do is take your nine-month season with AAU and high school and fall league and just be like, oh, I'm in season right now, I'm not playing much, but I'm going to be ready for that opportunity. That's when you really get stuck and... and you know, you don't you don't ever get that chance to get ahead. So I love that. It's a great point. But yeah, man, you're thank thank you for joining us. I know it's it was different time zone, all that stuff, but much appreciated. Finally got it done. Um, definitely been we needed to get this episode done for a while. So I'm sure everyone's gonna enjoy it. But appreciate you, man. Keep up the great work. Yeah, man, the great I appreciate y'all for uh, for having me on, man. It's been a blast. Thank you. Yep, for sure. Got to do a part two at some time, too. So let you know about that. Let's get it. Hey.